Lord, and above all, we this morning desire to uh, praise you and to see you as you've revealed yourself in your word. We might understand a little bit more of not only who you are, but what you desire of us and the mission you called all of us to, that we may be more effective as a result of what your word teaches us today. So we commit our time asking that you would have your way amongst us, and if there be anything that distracts any of us, that we may be able to set it aside and be able to focus on you and your word and allow your spirit to illumine and to encourage and motivate and that we may leave here a bit more conformed to your image. We just commit all these things to you in Jesus' name. Lewis Sperry Chafer, I don't know if any of you are familiar with him. You've probably heard of Chafer Seminary here in Albuquerque, named after him. In one of his books, he writes that there are, I don't know if he says at least, but there are at least 35 things that happen to the believer when we trust in Jesus Christ. In other words, 35 blessings from God. Others have come after him, have come up with 40, and then somebody wants to top that, come up with uh, 50. And So obviously that's not an exhaustive number, 35 or even 50. All of the things that God has done for us, on behalf of us, in us, as believers that unbelievers do not have. And one of the greatest things is he has made us sons, sons of the living God. Passage we're looking at deals with that issue in the midst of his discussion concerning the Christian life. Paul uses the word sanctification. So we'll be in 8, 12 through 17. We won't complete it. Pretty rich passage, but as usual, we'll start where we left off and continue where we leave off next time. So sonship. Now, a misconception of some that read the book of Romans, because it does deal with the unbeliever, is that it is written to unbelievers, but in fact, it's written to believers that resided in the city of Rome. I've used these photographs before. In fact, some of them died on that very spot in the Colosseum in the first century as a result of persecution. So the book is not written to the unbeliever. And the book itself tells us, written to the churches at Rome, and there were several of them. So believers at Rome were the intended audience. And when it deals with the unbeliever, It is written to the believer to better understand how to minister to the unbeliever, to understand their situation. So Paul is very theological, very detailed in his argumentation, and really an unbeliever probably will have a very difficult time reading Romans. So I wouldn't recommend it to an unbeliever, but it's written to us, and uh, it also assumes because the churches at Rome were taught somewhat thoroughly by the early believers. It seems there's evidence that they had a lot of understanding. And Paul writes to them because he had uh, not been able to visit the churches at Rome and desired to have some contact. So some of the issues, and we use these theological terms because this is what uh, Paul uses, justification. We've seen that section. We're in the section called sanctification, another word that Paul uses. 
a way of describing sanctification, as we've said over and over, is it's basically dealing, how do we live after we have become believers? What is the way that God has designed for us? And it's called sanctification, or kind of a synonym would be holiness, a life of holiness. And how do we attain that? Well, we know how we attain it is through justification, but how do we work it out? Connie. You say that the terms that Paul uses were used in everyday life. Normal. Well, yeah, he pulls them out of the culture. Justification right. is a legal term. In fact, a lot of legal terms that he uses. What about sanctification? Would they have known that? Would the Jews have known that from the, setting apart the dishes and whatever? Absolutely. The Jews would have been familiar with it. Maybe not so much the outside world, but as they observed Judaism, they would see that they were a set-apart people or a sanctified people. So it would have been known to the unbelieving world, but not as commonly as amongst the Jews. And we've been saying, and I keep reminding you, we have three parts to this section, the principles and we'll remind you at the heart of these principles, chapter 6. The heart is our union to Jesus Christ. From that union, life flows out so that we can have newness of life. That's kind of the main thought there. There's several others that we looked at. But in living out the Christian life, because we still have the old nature we have a tendency to go in different directions, coming up with lists, for example, of if I just check off all these boxes, then I can call myself a living and active Christian that we might describe as legalism. That was common in the first century. That's a problem, legalism. So we dealt with that issue in Romans 7. Another issue dealing with just trying to, with our own wills, do what God wants us to do or live the things that we know about in Christianity. And that only ends in frustration because we can't reach those standards. So there's some problems that we need to know about. The, the key here is the power that is available. and We're in that portion. And we've been tracing through different principles in each of these chapters. Each chapter gives us a different set, even though the main thrust of chapter 6, I've called it principles, but there's others. In chapter 8, we've already seen that the key here is the power of the Holy Spirit is in us to be able to fulfill what God expects and what God desires. The requirement of the law is fulfilled in us through the Holy Spirit. We can't do it in our own efforts. Another principle we looked at in the early verses here, walking in the Spirit, is the means that God uses to sanctify us, to set us apart. We've seen that, first 11 verses. And beginning in verse 9 and 10, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is the source of that power. So the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is what we emphasized the last couple of weeks and we'll see more principles. So that brings us to where we're at today. We're looking at verses 12 through 17, the power of sonship. We saw the power over sinful flesh. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit, first 11 verses, and then 12 through 17. Another concept is the power of sonship, and that's the focus of these verses. And there's several things in there. Some of them were not 
well, you all are probably familiar with, but most believers are a little fuzzy on them, so we'll spend some time on them. We saw last time, and uh, we'll pick up in the middle of verse 13. We saw 12 to 13, this obligation to the Spirit. Now, he's laid a lot of groundwork, and I've been emphasizing Romans 6, 7, and 8 have very, very few exhortations. In other words, commands, or very few elements of them that call us to do something or to respond in certain ways. The emphasis is knowing our place in Christ, our identity in Him, knowing the resources that are available to us. And then verse 11 in chapter 6, reckon them to be true. So a big part of the Christian life, in fact, the way of living it is continually renewing our thinking, and we have to do this on an ongoing basis. Continually focus on the truth because we are bombarded by a world that tells us the opposite, that lies to us. And depending on your background, your background will bring up thoughts, emotions, concepts that are not biblical, and we've been emphasizing the idea that what you think, you generally live out. In other words, what you believe, you live out. I use that kind of ridiculous example of the woman that's before the teller, and she thinks that the man behind her did something that she shouldn't have done, so she turns around because in her mind, that is what she's thinking. I won't show it to you again. We've shown it enough times. But she has a wrong conception of reality, a wrong idea in her head, but that wrong idea moves her to action. Now, that's kind of a vivid example of how our thinking moves us to act, but this is true in a broad, general area as well, and particularly in living a life to please God. So... She acts out of a misconception. In fact, I sent you a video this week of that police officer that thought that this man was in her apartment. Her thinking was that he should not be there, and perhaps he's there for bad reasons. She shoots him. She's a former police officer and kills him. This week they had the trial and convicted her of murder. But her response was because of what she thought was reality, and in fact, it was not reality. She was in the wrong apartment. And apparently the apartment complex, all of the floors were similar and be easy to get on the wrong floor and go in there and you have your mindset on something and the mindset is wrong. That works itself out in if you don't know Scripture and you don't know God's principles... If you don't know God's principles, then you live out your life based on your upbringing, which oftentimes is far from biblical, your experiences and the culture, all the things that give us input. So we have to continually renew our mind. So now we come to chapter 8, and we have this word obligation, And I want to take another look at it. I don't know if we clarified it. And in fact, last time, I know we didn't clarify it. So let's look at it again and do some clarification. So then, this is after the discussion of the indwelling presence. Now he's transitioning in these two verses. So he's still kind of 
talking about what he brought up before. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh. When we see the word obligation, we immediately start. In fact, we discussed last time, it's not a legalistic thing. Now, I have to do all these things. It's not an imperative. It's a statement. But it does have implications of if there's an obligation, then how do I respond to that? And I said that it's similar to what we looked at several years ago when we were in Romans 1, verse 14. Paul says this, he's obligated to present the gospel to Jew and Gentile. Doesn't mean that he did this out of a legalistic, oh, I have to now witness to these Jews and Gentiles. I don't want to, but I have to, so I'm going to do it. That's legalism. The idea there is that he is so blessed, so overwhelmingly blessed, that he views, how else can I respond? In other words, the only way that I can respond in gratefulness, this is grace, not legalism. And that's the idea here. He's laid out all these blessings. And we have this power available. We have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So how do I respond to that? I respond in gratefulness. And I feel this compulsion. I feel this this need, this obligation, you could even say. I feel indebted to all that God has done. In fact, uh, that's a legitimate translation Jeremy pointed that out last time, but the uh, audience never heard it. It was so good, I had to reemphasize it. (laughs) Okay. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh. Now, just to clarify, under obligation, Maddie, Maddie asked the question, and it was an excellent question. In the English, it's translated as a prepositional phrase. Now, it's not a bad translation. It's trying to give the idea behind here. But in reality, let me show you the Greek terms. And I'm sure Maddie went home and looked all this up when we were discussing it. Basically, the under obligation is the dark color there. The, what is it, brownish color? Ophelete. That's the word. It's a noun. Now, in Greek... The subject and the verbs, they're not in the way that we have it in English. In English, you generally have the noun first, then you have the verb, then you have an object. Well, this is more the, it's not really an object because it's a, and it's not a transitive verb. We said last time, in fact, you stated that. Yeah, it's not a transitive verb, it's an equative verb. Okay, esomen, in other words, the subject and the verb is in the next word, the one that is the first blue one there. So when it says, we are, that's esomen. That's this word right there. And then the not is at the end. So we are not, and then the uh, the noun is actually, I think it's accusative, it's at the end. We are not, whatever that word means, we're not debted, indebted, or debtors. It's a noun. Or the way it's translated in American Standard, we are not under obligation. Okay, does that make sense? So the we are not is the last part, and then under obligation is the first word there in the Greek text. Does that clarify it? Okay, so it's a noun that literally means 
what uh, Jeremy translated, debtors. Some translations. What translation are you using back there? You might have to holler. I was looking at the Greek. Ah, wow. There's a Greek student. Great. New King James. New King James. Great. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not in a legalistic sense, but in a sense of overflowing with all of the things that God has blessed us with. How else can I respond is the idea here. I don't respond to the flesh. I'm not indebted to it. I'm bound by it. And all it does is does destructive work in me. Instead, because of all that God has done in me and for me, now uh, I feel this compulsion, this obligation, not to pay back, but in thankfulness to now respond and that obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. But verse 13, for if you are living, now he expands it. And remember I mentioned the dash there. The dash is kind of Paul is parenthetically inserting kind of an expansion here. He says, well, I need to remind them about the destructiveness of the flesh and why we're not obligated to it before I give them what we are obligated to. Does that make sense? For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. And we talked and we've been seeing throughout Romans 6, 7, and 8, the concept of death is not ceasing to breathe. It's not the second death, the death after we die. There's a second death and we go to hell. It's not that. Look at Romans. It's that present tense, comprehensive sense in that the flesh is dead and the flesh does not produce anything spiritual, does not produce anything living, and therefore we are dying as long as we live in the flesh. We're not living what's available to us, okay? So we must die. We've gone over that several times. But if by the Spirit, now you go back to verse 12, you could say by the Spirit we are under obligation. The Phrase isn't there, including the word obligation, but part of the structure basically ties us back after the dash. But if by the Spirit we are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Make sense? And that's pretty much where we left off last time. So let's take a look at this. You are putting to death the deeds of the body. This is the focus. This is in sanctification where we need to think in terms of our response. What we are, because of our overwhelming thankfulness, what we are debtors to. In other words, this is what the response is. Even though it's not a command, it implies some action here. It's a statement, much like all of the other statements we've been looking at. So you go back to the commands, and how do I respond? Well, first I have to, remember, even in chapter 8, we have to have a different mindset. We have a mindset on the things of the Spirit. In other words, what is God? How is God involved? What has he done? How has he equipped me to be able to respond? All of the truths that we've been developing as we've been going through. But this is the focus of the response. So we reckon all of these things to be true. And then now we do the commands that are in 13, 
6, 13, and 14. In fact, let's remind ourselves of them. Go back to chapter 6. There's a command in verse 11. It's telling us to reckon. Even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin. Same concept we're talking about. But be alive in Christ Jesus. It's in that indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey its lusts. Reign as a king. In other words, dictate what you do. And what it's talking about here is basically the same thing that we're talking about in chapter 8. And then verse 13. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness. You know the areas of vulnerability. You know yourself. You know what you're tempted with. You know those areas. Don't present yourself in those situations that you know are not good for you. And each of these are different for each of one of us. So these are the things that we need to concentrate. This is how we put to death the deeds of the body. This is how we essentially deal with our past tendencies or past lives. This is the key. These are the commands. And they go on. The alternative is in verse 13. But present yourselves to God as alive from the dead. See the parallels here with chapter 8? We have life. Now, it doesn't explain it here, but in chapter 8, that life comes from that indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. In other words, make yourself available to those things that are going to strengthen you spiritually. Another command. So we have four commands. Walking in the Spirit. That's the essence of what we have in chapter 8. Back to chapter 8. So if you, by the Spirit, are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What does this mean? What what does it mean to put to death the deeds of the body? Let's kind of expand that a little bit. First of all, the term thanatao. Now, this is a common Greek word that we find, in fact, we've looked at it before. We find it quite extensively, not only in the New Testament, but in Romans. Paul uses two primary words. This is one of them. This is the verbal form to put to death in a literal sense. But in this context, we're talking about putting to death in terms of spiritual issues, in terms of deeds or in terms of lifestyle. Thanatao. It's in the present tense, so this is an ongoing activity or an ongoing commitment, the continuous putting to death, because once we deal with one issue in our experience, there's always a whole set of other issues that we need to deal with. This is ongoing. We will continue to battle with the flesh as long as we are in this life, in this time frame until we go to be with the Lord. So it's a continuous devotion that we need to give attention to. This is the obligation. This is what uh, God calls us, but he gives us all the resources to do it. In fact, we have the power, the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us. And that's the third thing. The power of the Holy Spirit is the one that can help us put it to death. But notice, if by the Spirit you are putting to death. So there is a participation 
And we have a principle here. In sanctification, we participate with the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit sanctifies. In fact, it's a total work of God himself by grace, but it's not automatic. It's not forced upon us. We participate in the sanctification. Terry. The concept of automatic, isn't that part of the perseverance of the saints aspect? I prefer to view that whole area as the perseverance of God. And let me clarify the question you asked, Terry, because maybe not everybody understands this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Essentially, it is the teaching that if a believer comes into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, then he will, in fact, if that salvation is genuine, he will, in fact, persevere and will continue in the process of sanctification. There may be a few ups and downs, but in general, he will persevere to the end. If he does not persevere, the doctrine teaches that that person was not saved in the first place. Now, I've got some problems with that whole doctrine, and one of them is it's not that we persevere. I believe that it's God that preserves us. Now, I believe in the doctrine of eternal security, but it's God who keeps us secure. It's not us persevering and keeping our salvation or demonstrating that we're saved, but it's God himself who perseveres and keeps us. But what it means also, or what I think is biblical, is that we can, in fact, fall away. The doctrine of perseverance says that you cannot So we can fall away simply by not walking in the Spirit. And if we persist, we can go in a downward spiral. And I think there are some that, in fact, never even return. But if they were genuinely saved in the first place, God perseveres in keeping them. And in fact, they are genuinely, ultimately have the salvation that God has promised. I hope that answers your question, Terry. So there is a need to walk in the Spirit and, in this context, put to death the deeds of the body. And the participation involves consciously dealing with those areas of sin that crop up in our lives, and we put them to death or put them to rest, put them behind us. And this includes thoughts, In fact, it starts usually with our thought processes. It's been the emphasis of chapter 6 through 8, what we think about. It includes not only thoughts, but what we aspire to or our aspirations, our goals, you might say. It includes impulses when you're in the midst of a tense situation or an emotional situation or you're under attack. Our tendency is to respond in fleshly ways, so we need to concentrate on preparing ourselves for those occasions so that when those occasions occur, we are able to put those old responses to death and then from there respond in the power of the Holy Spirit in a godly way. It involves our motives. Why do we do the things that we do? In fact, in churches, churches are filled with people that are there, and not with necessarily pure motives. They may be there because they feel that they have to be there. 
they're there maybe to give people the impression that they are spiritual in some ways, rather than uh, I'm here to see how I can minister, I'm here to see how I can grow and how I can worship, how I can uh, give glory to God. But all of us have mixed motives, and sometimes the negative ones, the ones that are fleshly, overpower the the godly ones. So we put those to death, motives as well. Desires, we all have desires, we all have needs. Those needs stimulate desires to, to satisfy those needs, and we can go about it in the flesh, or we can go about it in the spirit as well. God wants to meet all of those needs. Now, he'll use instrumentality, but the fleshly desires need to be put to death. And our words, how we speak to others, not only the choice of words, but how we use them. We can build up or we can tear down. We can respond in anger with angry words that destroy and do damage, or we can respond with words that build up. And then obviously actions, actual things that we actually perform and do, we have to put those that are not godly actions to death and see what the Holy Spirit would lead us to do. So that's the concept of putting things to death and apply another passage to the situation that we're talking about because it gives us another insight into how do we put to death the deeds of the body. So putting to death... The deeds of the body not only involves specific actions, but includes all of the elements involved in the flesh. And we have a list in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, that gives us some detail on uh, what are these deeds. In fact, that's how they are identified. Let's start with verse 17, Galatians five seventeen. But the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Sound familiar? Sounds a lot like what we're looking at in Romans 7 and 8 here, and particularly the last few verses in 8 where he's talking about the flesh Notice verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. There you go. Leading of the Spirit, almost the same phrase that we have here in Romans 8. Now, skip down to verse 19. Now, the deeds of the flesh, here they are. They're evident. In other words, they're easy to identify. They're easy to see. In fact, we can identify them in ourselves. Maybe not every one of them on this list here, but... We can find at least one or two of them. And here they are, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities. Some may be able to identify with that strife. Do you experience that? Jealousy. Hmm, getting close to home here. Outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom. So when we have obligation here, how do we respond? First, what are the truths that I need to believe in 
the situation that I'm in. I need to set my mind on those truths, as Romans 8 says. And then from Romans 6, 11, I need to believe them, reckon them to be true, because they are. In other words, these are biblical truths. And as I continually renew my mind and focus on these, now I can step out in faith, not only believing them, but appropriating all of the promises that we have and trusting in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 12, that is the process of not letting sin reign in my life because I'm now putting to death the deeds of the body. And verse 13 in chapter 6 Do not go on presenting your members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. So there's the third command that we have in that context. Don't put myself in situations or involve myself in those things that cause me to stumble. And then the positive, also in verse 13, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God that's walking in the Holy Spirit, responding to the positive things, appropriating power of the Holy Spirit. Those are the things that we need to focus in on when we come to this whole issue of putting to death the deeds of the body. Now, at this point, let me backtrack a little bit and let's clarify a little bit of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because in this context... I think we need to distinguish between some of the ministries in order to have some clarity and understanding here. Now, we've been talking about the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So let's expand upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit and remind you of things that we've already talked about. If you remember, in chapter 6, we talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit And in verses 3 through 4, the essence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this includes the uniting of the believer at the moment of salvation, uniting us in Christ, such that we are, in that context, baptized into Christ's death, baptized into his burial, and into his resurrection. That uniting, that identification, that baptism, that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we were talking about that in chapter 6, we made a distinction and, in fact, looked a little bit at the book of Acts. And we saw that this concept of baptism of the Holy Spirit is a one-time event. Now, in the book of Acts, remember, the book of Acts is a transitional book historically transitional from an old economy, the economy or the dispensation of law, to a new dispensation, a church age dispensation, a dispensation of grace. And in fact, the day of Pentecost is the birthday of the church. Now, the transition, in order to make clear that God is now working in a new way, in a different way than he did in the Old Testament. The book of Acts records the supernatural and the very unusual phenomenon that God used 
in order to call attention to and to make the disciples, the early disciples, aware that he's working in a new way. So to confirm this new work, he's talked about it in the Upper Room Discourse and other places, but now it's going to come about on the day of Pentecost. And if you remember, on the day of Pentecost, we have believers. And for the very first time, they receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it occurred in a very supernatural way, the record that we have there, speaking in tongues and other phenomenon to verify it, that it's real, that it's a different way that God's dealing than he dealt in the Old Testament. And in fact, in the book of Acts, we have in chapter 8, you could even consider it like a second Pentecost, where we have Gentile believers that experience a similar, spectacular, unusual baptism of the Holy Spirit. And again, it's subsequent to salvation. Chapter 2, Pentecost, subsequent to salvation, this blessing, or this, you could even say a second blessing in the book of Acts. And then we have a a third occasion in uh, Acts chapter 10 amongst a family of Gentiles, the centurion, the Roman centurion. And again, we have speaking in tongues and supernatural phenomenon uh, close to the salvation of Cornelius, but subsequent to it in order that Peter and the disciples would understand that God is working a new work and it's his work. It's a supernatural work. And now they realize that God is dealing not only with the Jewish nation, but with those outside as well. And all are now receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But those are passages from a historical book. Remember, we talked about not basing doctrine on historical books. And it's a transitional period. So God is moving from one era to another era. So you go to passages like the book of Romans here, Romans chapter 6, and every believer at the moment of salvation receives the baptism in the Holy Spirit. That is the normative. The other is the transition from an Old Testament economy to now a normative where every believer that trusts in Jesus Christ We saw a little bit of that in chapter 8 as well. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a believer. So that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now that's different from what we looked at in verses 9 and 10 in chapter 8. We talked about the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. It's different in that the baptism is a a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence, and it happens at the moment of salvation. That's the normative. The indwelling is an ongoing, permanent, inner presence or inner dwelling of the Holy Spirit that begins at salvation but continues. So that's the difference. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a one-time event. Indwelling is a continuous, ongoing experience of every believer. In fact, if a person is not a believer... He does not have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a third ministry of the Holy Spirit that we need to bring in at this point that is also different from baptism and different from indwelling. We call it the filling of the Holy Spirit. And what we mean by the filling in the passage, the central passage, Ephesians 5.18, 
We have a contrast there. Don't be filled with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's a command, so it's something that we experience or we need to appropriate. And what we could summarize it as is the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. And it's that empowering as a result of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that empowering that we experience as we walk in the Spirit. And when we're walking in the flesh, that's what we're talking about here, we are not filled with the Holy Spirit. So it is a an experience that we need to appropriate, but it's not continuous. It can be interrupted. And by sin, we interrupt that. By walking in the flesh, we are no longer filled. And we need to reconnect, regain fellowship. We do that by confessing that sin and that that walking in the flesh. And then uh, our sins on a temporal, everyday basis are forgiven and we are filled with the Spirit again. So it can be interrupted. It can continue as long as we walk in the Spirit. Connie? Can be walking in the Spirit or not in the Spirit? Because yes. either we're full or we're empty. It's one or the other. Okay. Yeah. It's not the Spirit leaves you. That's permanent. Right, right, right. Indwelling is permanent. Go ahead. He says the word quenching the Holy Spirit. Yes. That's when we're not letting Yes. We can quench the working of the Spirit. All right. Also, we can, what's the other word? There's the Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. Grieve and quench the Spirit. Now, grieving the Spirit, that's in Ephesians 4, I think around verse 30. Quenching the Spirit, that's First Thessalonians 5, towards the end of the chapter. So those are the two negative commands, actually, that encourage us from the negative perspective, not to grieve and not to quench the Spirit. And then the positive is obviously the Ephesians 5.18, where we are to be filled with the Spirit, much like, in fact, somewhat synonymous with walking in the Spirit. So we have those commands. And the walking passage is in the Galatians 5 passage. Again, there's a difference between the filling and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, also keep in mind, the Holy Spirit is God, and being God, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. So, the Holy Spirit is everywhere. So, when we think of the indwelling presence, we're thinking in terms of God manifesting a presence in a very special way inside the believer. But God is omnipresent, And that would mean that he is everywhere, including the unbeliever, but obviously not in the sense of an indwelling presence. Does that make any sense? And that is the point of what we're dealing with in Romans 8. What we're talking about, we put the deeds of the body to death in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's a process that goes on in the filling of the Holy Spirit. So that is different from baptism. That's different from indwelling. It is the experience that we have. Another way of looking at it is the idea of walking in the Spirit. That is walking filled with the Spirit. 
Does that make sense? See how it fits here? So we have these different ministries. We have the indwelling presence, but it's different from the filling. The filling can be interrupted. The indwelling is permanent, never interrupted. And it is the resource that we have to appropriate the power of the Holy Spirit. So at the end of verse 13, if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Walking filled with the Holy Spirit is living. That is life. That is spiritual life. That's where power is appropriated and where we experience that power of the Holy Spirit, where we can do things differently. We can live differently. We can respond differently to all of the circumstances of life. Now, let me remind you, I've been using this illustration and I'll use it again and I'd like to expand it. I'm not going to give you all the details, but if you remember, I've been using the illustration of a Boeing 777, uh, some of the details of uh, wingspan, speed, etc., number of passengers, but the whole point here is in the the area that we want to focus in on is the 330 tons. That's maximum weight when all of the passengers are on board and all of their luggage and all of the fuel and everything else. That's the maximum weight. And the illustration is we could put all the effort that we wanted to to lift it off the ground. And even if we were successful, so what? What does it accomplish? It didn't accomplish anything. We are not capable. Even all of us in the class could not lift it off the ground and we would not even want to try. So defeats the whole purpose of this airplane. But we know that there are laws of gravity that hold it on the ground. And the only way to get it airborne, if you will, is to counteract those laws. We've gone over all of this. I don't want to belabor it. In fact, I've said too much already. We counteract the law of gravity by aerodynamic forces that overcome the law of gravity, but it requires a certain speed in order to overcome. So we have these huge General Electric 90 turbine engines. Here's a photograph that helps you put it in perspective. Tremendous power. And with the power of these turbine engines, it can get the airplane to a certain speed such that the aerodynamic lift can overcome 330 tons of pull of gravity. So we can take it one step. The analogy that I will continue to develop here is that these engines produce the jet power that enables the airplane to reach that speed such that the aerodynamic lift will not only lift it off the ground, but will continue to let it soar. So you have 330 tons that gravity is still acting on, but you have a counteracting law that allows it to float like a feather above the clouds, and you can enjoy the ride if you're on the airplane. So the analogy is the new nature, the new nature can soar in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the analogy I'm using here, it's like those jet engines. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. And because it's God's power, it can overcome any obstacle. It can overcome any force or anything that attempts to counteract it. And it can produce 
something similar to the aerodynamic lift in uh, chapter 8. We saw in, uh, what was it, verse 3, the law of the spirit of life that gives it lift. And I used the illustration, and now I'm kind of expanding it. Now we have the jet power of the Holy Spirit. So that kind of illustrates this putting to death the deeds of the body. We have forces and power that counteract that old life, counteract the flesh, such that we saw in the other verses what the flesh produces. It produces death. That's what Romans 8 is telling us. And in Galatians 5, beginning in verse 22, we have the alternative of what the spirit can produce. This is spirit power. This is soaring. This is living life. This is living. And let's take a look at those verses. Verse 22, and notice, but the fruit of the spirit. In other words, it's something that the spirit produces within us. Then we have the long list is love. We're able to love even the unlovely. In fact, we can love supernaturally. We can love unconditionally. So the spirit, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these don't come naturally. All of these require supernatural enablement to enable us to be able to exhibit them. But they're the fruit of the spirit. Gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. No counteracting law. There's no power against them. Now, those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Do you see the parallelism here? We have parallel passages that reinforce what we've been looking at in our passage in the book of Romans. So that brings us basically to the next passage where now he's going to introduce to us a new concept that's related, the concept of sonship. That's in verse 14. And we've run out of time, so we'll have to reserve this for next week. But let me just introduce it, and then we'll pick up there next time. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, the leading of the Spirit, we saw that in Galatians, we see it here again. These are sons of God. And this is also very important in sanctification. We'll develop that concept next week. Closing thought that we can take with us. Walking in the Spirit produces the abundant life, produces it now. So we have eternal life, and we have eternal life now. This is what Jesus talks about when he mentions life and abundant life. It's available to us right now. Who wants to close for us? Father, thank you so much for all the blessings that you give to all these 35 plus blessings you get to the pond when you believe. Thank you for the sonship, which we may discuss next time, but that we can experience um, daily. What about last week? It appears they stripped all the seem to have made this a pretty sterile space. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would um, anyone who uses this space for meeting would be blessed and would feel your presence. Here in the same is abundant life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.